Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hi, I'm your ever-prepared, ready-for-anything ER doc, Dr. Ward. And this week, we're going to do something exciting and new. Come aboard. We're expecting you. I bet no one in our listening audience still remembers that show. Wait, is that Gilligan's Island? No. no, that was a three-hour tour. I was talking about the love boat. Oh, really? the love no? boat. Well, they're both before our times, both TV shows, one by slightly a few more years. <laughs> All right. That was a very tactful way of saying that I'm getting old. So this week, we've covered planes, we've covered trains, we've covered automobiles. Now it's time to take to the high seas and... Previously, we spoke about pirate medicine, but I figured it'd be nice to kind of do a little bit more of a deep dive into actual cruise medicine. And so, Ward, you had a chance to recently speak to a cruise ship doctor, right? I had the pleasure of speaking with uh, Dr. Dr. Joel Chu. He is a board-certified emergency medicine physician. He started doing cruise medicine from as soon as he graduated residency. He's been doing it for almost 20 years. What made him decide to go straight from residency into cruising? Was, was residency <laughs> that hard? Did he just need a break? I think we all could, could have used a cruise vacation after, after residency, right? I mean, residency was pretty brutal. I asked him and he said he's always loved traveling. As a relatively young person, cruise is not one of the first things we think of when we think of vacation, right? But he thought, hey, why not combine work and vacation together so he combined his love of medicine and his love of tra- love of traveling, and uh, as a result, he said he's been to just about every continent. So periodically, we will be hearing a few sound clips from your interview with Doctor Chu about how about his experiences in cruise medicine. But you know, I have to nerd out just a little bit. So 
I figured as we were talking about the history of cruise and medicine, when did people actually start going on pleasure cruises? Like at what point did we go from the British East India Company to Gilligan's Island? I'm going to guess probably even before the British uh, East India Company, right? I mean, I would guess that even early, early people who ended up settling the world probably went on cruises and they just didn't get a return ticket and somehow ended up in Australia. I'm talking specifically about pleasure cruises, signing up as a merchant seaman to go on tours and deliver cargo and really work as a job. It's not quite the same as saying, you know what, let's get on a boat, have people serve us and kick back. And in fact, the earliest ocean going vessels were not really concerned with passengers, but with the cargo that they could carry. That's why British East India Company really helped to expand the British Empire. Uh, but in America, we had the Black Ball Line in New York, which is a terrible name, but that's fine. The Black Ball Line in New York in 1818 was actually the very first shipping company in the U.S. to offer regularly scheduled service from the U.S. to England for passengers and to be concerned with the comfort of their passengers at all. You know, that's the first one that was really taking people as something, looking at people as cargo. Before, it'd just be like, oh, we're carrying a bunch of tea and tobacco and livestock. And, oh, I guess we have a little bit of space to bring someone if you want to go visit your grandmother. But, you know, who knows? Whereas Blackball Line started saying, hey, we're going to actually put rooms for people to sleep in along with the cargo. 1818, eh? Pretty early. You know, when they're talking about comfort of their passengers, we're not talking high comforts. In fact, the first... I loved this, this little tidbit. Uh, in 1840, the Britannia, the very first ship under the, the cruise Cunyard, which I think became Carnival, is the Cunyard company. But Britannia was the very first ship to put a cow on board to supply fresh milk to the passengers on the transatlantic crossing. And that's when the very first pleasure cruise, the idea of traveling just for the sake of traveling, really began in the 1840s. Oh, wow, that is old school hipster. I can't even imagine now, like, artisan fresh milk. Right. Now they would charge you an extra several hundred dollars for that. Like, <laughs> our milk comes from only the finest sea cows. <laughs> well, they back in the days, they probably had a free helping of fresh listeria to go with that milk as well. Oh, we'll get to listeria and norovirus, the, the curse of the cruise lines, right. uh, certainly. But as... As pleasure cruises really began to develop as an industry, you know, people were still a little bit hesitant. Sea travel was not always the safest means, but it was the only real means of getting from one continent to another. You know, trains had largely moved into the steam era by this year, but the British Medical Journal actually started in the 1880s recommending cruises for health. They would say, you know, take leisurely pleasure cruises to improve that sea air can do things for people with respiratory diseases or you know sunlight can help people with rickets trying to get out of smoggy london and again passenger comforts were not terribly made a priority um steerage class was invented that's what you think of when the movie titanic and you have all the guys dancing jigs and sleeping like 20 to a room and responsible providing their own food and sleeping wherever. That's what steerage class was. Oh, so it's like a hostel on the sea. Up until this time, untrained crew members would really just 
follow radio instructions and double a ship's doctors. So your doctor may be the carpenter one day, the ship's boy the next, the cook uh, the following day. There wasn't really an official ship's doctor for these pleasure cruises, although we did talk about there always being one on military and merchant vessels for the actual crew. Well, funny you should mention that. I mean, it sounds like they were the original practitioners of telemedicine. And as we will talk to Dr. Chu about this, uh, cruise liners really were uh, frontiers in terms of doing telemedicine because you're isolated somewhere out in the ocean. You are not going to have a full panel of experts like surgeons and, you know, ENT doctors and urologists. So even today, a general doctor who's on board will need to radio in and phone it in and speak with a specialist. So let's hear from him a little bit about that. Uh, introducing folks, Dr. Joel Chu, our ship's doctor. Certain cruises that have thousands on board. I have been on a cruise, cruises that they actually brought on a nephrologist and dialysis machine and so that you can get your dialysis on the sea. If they need something uh, more than that, usually we told them to go back to the cabin and if they need, say, a CT scan, I will we'll, we'll call on them when uh, next port of call comes up and we make arrangement for them to go to the hospital. Actually, a little bit intimidating to know that you have to be all the specialties and that you know your help is really just coming from a radio. Right. It makes me appreciate the resources I have in the ED a lot more. Following World War I, the years between 1920 and 1940, were considered the most glamorous years for transatlantic passenger ships. That was, like I said, what you typically think of as traveling on the Titanic, you know, before it sunk. It did look like fun before right? it sunk. <laughs> yeah. The true cruise industry, or at least what most of us today would think of as the cruise industry, began in the 1960s. Rather than focusing on the transatlantic voyage, because, you know, everybody now could just hop on a plane, why spend two to three weeks on a boat going from London to America when you could hop on a plane and do it in a few hours. So cruise ship companies started focusing on doing small loops and making stops at multiple ports. And that really led them to concentrate their efforts on vacation trips in the Caribbean and create a fun ship image to attract people who would never have had the opportunity to travel on the super liners of the 1930s and 40s. So they were really trying to play both into nostalgia and a shrinking market for ship travel due to airlines. Oh, and it makes sense that they focused on the Caribbean. They're right there in the ocean. Um, and, what you know, I'll bet you sometimes back, back in the uh, 30s and 40s, the Caribbeans were still being developed, and they might not have all the modern amenities that you have on a fancy on the fancy Titanic. What really catapulted the popularity of cruises that began in the 1960s was the 1970s series, The Love Boat, because they had every week, it showed a different celebrity guest having some kind of adventure along with the ship's crew, and it just made cruises look like a lot of fun. So that show had a lot to do with cruising popularity, and now we have carnival cruises, MSC, uh, Disney, and it seems to be a thing that's pretty popular. So, Dr. Chu, uh, we learned a little bit about, now I know he's incredibly busy, but Ward, you got a chance to talk to him a lot, and hopefully you remember some of the information he provided to you. 
you mentioned he decided to become a ship's doctor just because it really offered him a lot of opportunities coming straight out of residency. Mm-hmm. But did he mention what medical specialties are best suited to the job? We talked about what kind of, because he, he has to sign out to another doctor when his turn is over on the boat, right? So they re- it's kind of like a they have to have a continuous medical personnel on boat at all times. So they relieve each other off each other's duties. And he said, maybe about half of them are emergency medicine physicians. Um, and there are some internal medicine doctors and family practitioners. They're almost, there's almost no, he's never signed out to a surgeon or an OBGYN because you need, you need to treat everyone. Essentially when you're on, on the boat, uh, you are responsible for uh, critically care, uh, critically ill patients, as well as your general run-of-the-mill cough, colds, lacerations, fracture reductions. You're the entire ship's primary care doctor. You also have to refill their, you know, blood pressure medicine. Uh, if someone's kids are having uh, pediatric issues, you have to be able to take care of all these issues. And really, family practice and emergency me- medicine are the two are the two groups that are probably most comfortable with seeing everyone. Yeah, I'd have to say, as an internal medicine specialist, my strength is really in in diagnosis. I could be like, yes, this is definitely what you have. But when I have to reduce a fracture, I'm like, yep, it's a fracture. Unlike when you're at a hospital, uh, Dr. Chu goes into excessive detail about what what equipments they have and what, uh, what supplies they have. Now, an internist uh, expert diagnostician like yourself may order advanced imaging tests, uh, a lot of fancy tests, in other words, right? They don't have the capabilities of really having an ICU and intensively monitoring someone nonstop for days, unlike in an ICU. So let's hear from Dr. Chu about what supplies are often in the medical cabinet on a standard cruise ship. Do you have a full pharmacy on board or is it a limited pharmacy? We do not have a lot of medication. They do not keep a lot of medication. So we can most likely uh, find some equivalent uh, medication, beta blocker and uh, so forth of your hypertension. But uh, we can probably can give you only like three or four days. Then you end up having to buy a foreign brand medication when uh, you get on shore. Dr. Chu, tell me about what is the infirmary and the office clinic? What, is, what do they look like on board a, a, a cruise ship? Basically, uh, look like a doctor's office. They have, there's a waiting room and uh, that sits about five or six patients. There's a desk right in the waiting room where the nurses sit and the, where you check in. Then uh, my office consists of a, of a desk and a chair for you. And there's a curtain drawn in between uh, the desk and the examining table. Once I speak to you and thinking that there need to be a more in-depth examination, I would just lead you into the current uh, part of my room and have you undress and I can uh, into a gown and I can come examining. There's usually a small medicine cabinet uh, in my office where the most commonly used medication are there. And I can, when I have prescribed you, say, the common antibiotic, Tylenol, Motrin, ENT medication uh, without going to the full pharmacy. And right. then there are a ICU room where there is a patient's gurney 
and there are resuscitation drugs there, and there is a defibrillator, a cardiac monitor, and a small uh, ventilator, uh, just in case I, I need to give respiratory support. And then there are usually about three inpatient rooms that's mostly used for cruise isolation. And there is an x-ray uh, department where there's an x-ray machine that they can uh, take a plain film x-ray. Got it. And so you, in terms of capabilities, do you, do you have oxygen, EKG, uh, IV medications, IV fluids? Yes, we do. Cardiac monitors. Oh, you have all that. Yes. Uh, so it sounds like there's a lot of the same things you would see in at least a basic ER, you know, wheelchairs, a stretcher, a backboard for spine immobilization, capabilities to run some very basic lab tests, of course, an EKG. Uh, well, they even, have an, about, they even have an ICU room. Now, their ICU room is not going to be, it's not going to be the same standard of care as your ICU at your local hospital. I mean, I, I don't know if you've, if you're, um, uh, if you've ever seen ICU orders, I mean, the initial orders are like three pages long with tons of orders and tons of, um, you know, we, we recheck vital signs every, uh, sometimes every 15 minutes, continuous monitoring. They don't, they don't necessarily do all that, but they do have respirators. They do have, you know, IV infusions. They do have, they can intubate someone. They can put you on a cardiac monitor and medication drips. But the idea is to stabilize someone and transport that person into a onshore uh, intensive care unit. And who's working with Dr. Tu during these shifts? Is it just him by himself? Are there other, are there multiple docs on board? Does he have nurses, nurse practitioners? So he does have, he does have uh, another doc that works with him. One is responsible for the crew and one is responsible for the, uh, for the passengers. And he has, I think he says, three or four nurses on staff. Wait, the crew and the passengers have separate health care teams? He personally has uh, a number of nurses, but there are two doctors on uh, when he's on assignment. One is responsible for the crew and one is responsible for the passengers. And he generally is responsible for the passengers. Uh what are some of the more serious conditions that you take care of on the on the ship? Uh, I have a serious condition uh, of fracture of different long bones. Sometimes uh, I have seen hip fracture before. I have diagnosed appendicitis, and but those we do not take care of on board, which uh, ask them to go on shore to get that taken care of. Uh, we do see chest pain, and we do have capability of uh, running troponin. I've seen detached retina before. Uh, but those are usually referral on shore. Got it, got it. And what are some of the more common things you see on, on the cruise Most ship? commonly, we see uh, cold, sore throat, uh, GI complaint, diarrhea, headache. And are those usually just taken care of pretty quickly? Uh, yes, we, we do uh, what we can here. Hmm, I wonder what separate issues the crew would have to deal with that the passengers wouldn't. We talked about that as well, you know, the treatment for crew and passengers are actually sometimes a little different, especially when it comes to isolation and quarantine. Why would somebody need to be quarantined? One of those common conditions that goes around on the cruise ship are, well, just like out here, uh, viral syndromes, flus, colds, 
and diarrhea. And they actually have a specific, they have a very specific definition for, for infectious gastroenteritis. And it is it, the number of uh, loose stools you have in 24 hours. Well, it's interesting that one loose stool that a lot of people consider to be diarrhea a day, they actually don't count that as technically as diarrhea. I think it actually has to be more than something like six watery stools or something like that to count as, yep, you got infectious gastroenteritis. Ward, did you happen to bring up the Bristol stool scale with him? I did not. If I only remembered how to use the Bristol stool scale, <laughs> I think I think because they're not in Bristol, they're in international waters. They have their own set of rules. The international water stool scale. The international water stool scale. I I think that their scale is a sounds like it's a bit more generous than what what you know what uh, the layperson would consider as having the runs. For the those of you who are oh go ahead. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the scale, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to our very first episode. You'll have to forgive us the sound quality, but the earliest days of Travel Medicine Podcast, we spent a large amount of time talking about our trip to India and Delhi Belly and the ranking system for stool. Our family members were probably considered one or two loose stools as, oh, you know what? I got the runs. That's not... That's probably not going to get you quarantine on on a cruise ship. If you have six or more watery stools, then yeah, yeah, you're going to be quarantined. And luckily, as passengers, they they mostly get quarantined in um, in their nice rooms. But you can't quarantine a crew member to their room because they they live in they kind of live in the hostile situation, right? So they also they work closely with each other. So those are the people they get admitted to the isolation rooms. The, that's for the crew, uh, crew members. And when a passenger is quarantined, they just get locked in their room. But they don't get locked. Well, so they don't get locked in per se. It's not like a prison. It's an honor system. You, they don't, they don't put a giant Acme lock on and then throw away the keys. <laughs> oh, I thought they deactivated your key card. No, no, no. It's, it's honorary. Okay. Yeah, so well, that's, that's according to Dr. Chu. At least the cruise ships that he works on, it's 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 an honor system. And you're not allowed to leave, but they do have you can call a nurse, they will check in on you, and they do give you a meal budget and a room service budget. So they do give you room service. So you're still having, you know, a relatively nice time on vacation. You just can't go, you know, put your fingers in every pie in the buffet. Now, the most common cause of gastritis, or certainly the ones that people most commonly associate with cruises, is norovirus, which is incredibly infectious. It only takes, you know, a, the tiniest amount to cause symptoms. And it, there was a big scare a number of years ago where people were convinced that it, you know, norovirus basically just lives on cruise ships. Symptoms of it usually last about one to three days and most of the time resolve without treatment. Meaning you don't need antibiotics. There don't tend to be long-term consequences. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The incubation period is about 24 hours. So if one person gets it, it can spread rapidly. I was going to say, that's the tricky part about, about uh, norovirus, that there is an incubation time. So even you can be infectious before your quarantine starts and before you even start to show symptoms. I know the biggest scare, and certainly going into the research for this episode, I thought that norovirus was just running rapid. Like you go on a cruise ship and you're almost as certain to get some kind of GI distress as if you end up in India for longer than, I don't know, a layover. <laughs> But a recent CDC report showed that between the years of 2008 to 2015, only about a quarter percent, not of 25, but a 0.25 percent of the 73 million cruise passengers and 0.15 percent or a tenth of a percent almost of the 28 million crew members reported real symptoms of the illness requiring them to remain bedbound for any length of time. And that means the actual likelihood of contracting gastroenteritis from any cause on an average seven-day cruise is less than 1%. So as long as you're practicing universal precautions, meaning washing your hands, you know, paying careful attention to those sneeze guards at the buffet, you're really not likely to get infected on the ship. Yeah, it sounds like from talking to Dr. Chu that he actually... Uh, never had to work with a pandemic situation or uh, epidemic situation. But less than 1% of, oh gosh, a few thousand people on the boat, that's still a lot of people. Stereotype is that the the people who take cruises tend to run a little bit on the older side. Uh, Dr. Chu has talked to me about uh, running into sick patients, like a patient having, uh, having an active heart attack on the boat. That has its unique challenges since... As you know, um, we healthcare workers like to work in teams. The emergency physician sees a patient and immediately calls the internist, the cardiologist, the ICU doctor, the interventional cardiologist. Sometimes the radiologist weighs in. Well, you, you only have two docs on the ship, and you're both essentially primary care or general practice doctors. So uh, taking care of a sick patient uh, all by yourself can be a little daunting. Also... You know, we on shore, we work in shifts, right? You and I were like, okay, my shift is over after eight hours. Well, they have six-week assignments or four-week assignments or even four-month assignments. So you can't really sign a patient out. You are the doctor for that patient for the entire duration of when, from when they leave shore to when they dock again. Oh, geez. And I thought one week on, one week off could be rough. Oh, boy. Yeah. The entire assignment, you're not always on obviously on the uh, on the ocean you do dock and when you dock uh, doctors are uh, able to transport their patients onto onshore facilities 
And from my understanding, cruise doctors can make arrangements to have passengers transferred to a health facility at any port at the passenger's expense. I think you mentioned in your conversation with, with Dr. Chu, and I'm not sure if this made it onto the recording, what happens with regards to blood transfusions or dialysis or things that require a little bit more intervention but may not be a crisis? Oh, interesting you mentioned dialysis. Now, um, I was very surprised to find that certain cruise ships, because a lot of the cruise-going members are a little bit on the older side, have more medical problems. They do have dialysis units on cruise ships. Isn't that wonderful? Really? That is impressive. So if you have to go on dialysis Monday, Wednesday, Friday, that does not stop you from taking a transatlantic or a Caribbean cruise. On the other hand, transfusions get a little tricky. So if you need a transfusion regularly, that does not like sound like uh, a good idea to go on a go on a one month cruise because specifically because uh, while they do have a volunteer log of crew members and I think sometimes passenger blood types in case of emergencies. So O neg, as we know, O negative is the universal donor. They cannot do all the finer screenings and type and crossing on the boat. So getting just O-neg blood from a person who has not been screened for any diseases is risky business. And we talked about it in his entire career. He actually has never had to do a emergent transfusion on the boat. It's actually kind of cool that they do keep track of people's blood types. And in case, oh gosh, I don't know, God forbid someone slips or has an accident and has a massive hemorrhage and needs someone's blood to save his or her life, that is a possibility. I think cruise ship crews are generally a young, healthy bunch. On the other hand, as we know, there are a lot of potentials for infectious diseases without proper screening. I've heard that people don't go on cruises before they die. They go on cruises to die, and that's a certain reference to the more, shall we say, mature population of those elderly. Did Dr. Chu have anything to say about how accurate that is? He did. He said, please don't do it. <laughs> it, is a, <laughs> it is a nightmare in terms of logistics for the crew and for the doctors and for everyone involved who are still alive. If you have really serious illness where you have certain amount of life expectancy left, probably not a good idea to take on a cruise because create quite a hardship for medical personnel on board and uh, it's not quite the best place to, to spend final days of your life. Now, speaking of that topic, are there people who go on cruise essentially to die? I have seen patients who said that, no, I, I don't care if I die on the ship. But if they actually die, you actually create quite a bit of uh, difficulty. Because uh, every uh, time before I come on to a new country, I need to fill a manifest. And the manifest, uh, they basically, uh, they are very concerned about whether or not there are infectious causes uh, on board and anyone who die on the right. ship on board. Uh, what happens when someone dies? What is the morgue situation for, I, for most cruise ships? Luckily, on, of all those years I cruise, and no one ever died on board uh, on my ship. But well I, as I understand it, there are body bags and there are uh, morgue with a refrigerator or freezer. And I have never visited and I have no one, nobody ever died on me. So I, I, I feel <laughs> lucky. Think about it. If 
if a person passes away in international waters and they are requesting to dock in another country, well, we don't know what that person really died of, right? So if you bring a person with an infectious disease into another country without proper quarantine, you can potentially cause some problems. I think that's how uh, most zombie movies tend to start. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But in fact, every cruise ship, uh, we learned, does contain a morgue of varying size. And and that's because every year, about 200-some-odd people on average die on cruise ships, uh, whether from heart attacks, disease, presumably there's a few overboards, things like that. So ships need a place to store the bodies. That's because, you know, if you die, just to be clear... The cruise is not turning around. You might be dead, but grandma's still going to Venice. There's typically some body bags and a room with, at minimum, six to ten refrigerated storage units. Although some of these mega cruise lines, for example, princess cruises, tend to keep an onboard morgue bigger than most emergency departments with about 100 crips per ship. I think most cruises tend to have at least six to ten refrigerated units for, for people who pass away along the way. Now, we can circle back to what happens when people are abandoned uh, by their cruise ships for illness or death. But I want to know, what is Dr. Chu, what is his rank on the ship? Is, is he like, you know, a passenger? Is he a crew member? Is he like Captain Crunch where he has a rank, but it's not a real one? What's his position? Does he get to captain the ship ever? Well, I don't know if he gets to captain the ship ever but a, a ranking officer on the boat, not just a couple of um, sea barnacles like you and I when we, right. <laughs> when we are on. I think that's our technical ranking. Tell me about the chain of command on the, uh, on the ship. Where do you fall? I'm, I, I, Captain is the five-stripe officer. The four-stripe officer are the chief uh, officer or the first mate and the hotel manager. Those are four-stripe uh, uh, officer, I'm a three-stripe officer, and I'm uh, in command of the uh, medical department. You know, it's good to know that they actually still use the stripe system. A five stripes is a captain, and uh, a medical chief medical officer is three stripes. Wow, three stripes. That means nothing to me. I'm going to assume it's high. Is this like a one-to-five-star system? Like where? It's a one-to-five-star system, yeah. So how important... How important is a three-stripe? Like, what's the jump between three-stripe and four-stripe, or three-stripe and five-stripe? I don't know if he actually gets to send anyone to their rooms. Well, no, I guess he does. He has the power to say, hey, you know what? You're under quarantine, buddy. Go to your room. And I'm sure it comes with other privileges. But, you know, they, they're, not a, they're not actually a military organization. So it's the ranking's not actually like a military officer. On the other hand, it does give you status. Oh, I guess I was kind of hoping it was a little bit like Starfleet. I don't think emergency medicine residency prepared us t- to to pilot a ship. Although, given the chance, I would gladly sit in the in the bridge and say, "This is Lieutenant Sulu <laughs> reporting for duty." <laughs> Make it. Where so. are we going now? <laughs> oh no, just Florida. Okay, fine. <laughs> there were a couple times, as you may be aware, I lived and worked in Hawaii for a time. And Mm -hmm. Hawaii in and of itself is a popular cruise destination. And I was on the landbound side of that. And one of the things, one of the fairly regular 
patients to Hawaii would be people from cruises who got sick, were then sent to shore by a physician such as Dr. Chu, and then the ship left. They're, quite literally, their ship had sailed while they were still admitted to the hospital. Yikes. So what, what does Dr. Chu do at that point? Does he just say, well, you know, here's the pills that uh, you brought on board. Do they toss your luggage or suitcase over the side and say best of luck? Because I know what we did from our end, but I'm curious what happens on the cruise side. Hey, I'm glad you mentioned that. You know, Dr. Chu did talk about what to bring um, to your cruise ship if you, if you have a medical condition and, and you, you want to take a cruise. For most people who want to take a cruise ship, I, I recommend that they um, make sure you get an extra supply of their medication. It is difficult to get medication refilled on board because we're kind of stingy because we only have a limited amount of medication on board. And also, uh, you kind of bring your medical record, maybe an EKG. You now, if you have a cardiac issue, a copy of EKG would be uh, immensely helpful. Oh, that's great advice. I'll bring a copy of your EKG because sometimes doctors need to compare a new EKG to a previous EKG to see if there's a change or if this is a chronic abnormality on the EKG. And the other thing is be very helpful to bring uh, your prescription medication on your carry-on cases. I have seen prescription medication on their uh, checking luggage. And of course, the checking luggage gets lost and you know, gets shipped somewhere. And they're without their prescription medication for a whole week. You know, once, once you're on board, it's hard for the, your checking luggage to catch up to you once they, they, they are deep. You know, I, we didn't specifically talk about evacuation procedures, but they, when there is a patient who needs inpatient care, they absolutely will uh, arrange for transportation so they, you are off the ship. And I, you know, I assume they bring all your belongings with, uh, take their belongings with them. Imagine if you're the one doctor in charge of the entire 3,000, 4,000 passenger ship, you are not going to be able to be responsible for discharge after the hospital. That they probably put that, that onus on, on your capable hands, Josh. Because as you know, when you get discharged from a hospital, very often you need a lot of needs, rehab needs, new medications, oxygen needs, new wheelchairs, new, um, you might you know, end up with new disabilities after a hospital stay, after a stroke, after a heart attack. A cruise ship is probably not, not prepared to be your uh, next step. It's not a nursing home. I'm glad you brought that up, Ward, because for some people, cruise ships are in fact nursing homes. And this is a trend that has been becoming more popular in recent years. Um, the average cost to stay on a cruise, at, according to a few residents who's, who I researched through the New York Times, it costs about $164,000 a year to basically continue cruising nonstop at a higher service level, not full VIP, but definitely privileged. And that's comparable with a fancy retirement home, but the cruise has better service and programs like dances and entertainment, plus there's a morgue. So uh, <laughs> I have to say it's not the worst idea. Um, it does sound attractive now, doesn't it? Would you rather go to Shady Pines or? Well, I do have to clarify, though. What now, Josh? What you're talking about is a retirement home, 
not a skilled nursing facility, not a full rehab facility. Sure. Right? Yeah, right. yeah, that's correct. This is not a rehab. This is a long-term, long-term care. Now, many cruise ships also host regular Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, which is good considering how much alcohol you're surrounded by. But you might not realize it because they're often announced as friends of Bill W. are meeting on some place because Bill W. was the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, friends of Bill W.'s meetings. Yeah, and that way they get to avoid any kind of shame or whatever, but also seek help that may be necessary for people who have substance dependency while surrounded by that very big temptation. You know, they do things very... (laughs) Very uh, discreetly, don't they? I, I've actually heard of. Um, I've actually heard of. Uh, they actually have meetings like Friends of Dorothy uh, meetings on cruises. Oh, and what do the Friends of Dorothy meet for? Friends of Dorothy are friends of the LGBTQ community. Community. Oh, so Wizard of Oz reference. Wizard of Oz, Very yeah. Nice. Um, now, one of the things I think we didn't get to cover is when a ship has to have a doctor, like we know almost all these cruises have require, it sounds like at least two medical officers, but any ship that has over 50 passengers is required by law to contain a medical room and at least one doctor, which is primarily for the issues that Dr. Chu spoke about. Um, But it doesn't tell you how many. So 50, 100, 1,000, just one doctor. So I'm glad to hear that Dr. Chu is not kind of stuck being the only person so i would imagine that um taking care of that many people would be would be quite daunting and relentlessly tiring but we actually talked to dr chu about what his um what his workload is and it sounds like he does have time when he's when when the boat docks and they're you know they're going on shore he does have time to actually have some free time to himself so that's that's kind of the main things I think you got a chance to cover with him. And it sounds like you guys had a fascinating conversation. Now, we talked a little bit briefly about these infections like norovirus and he said respiratory infections. And I have to tell you, ships, by and large, pretty clean, which was not the initial impression I had. But ships undergo unannounced inspections in U.S. ports. And there's a CDC vessel sanitation program that you need. you can score about a possible 100 points. And the minimum passing inspection score is 85 points. Most cruises, when checked, tend to score 90 to 97. Oh, that's reassuring. So now that we know cruises are safe to go on, who should and shouldn't go on a cruise? Oh, yeah. why? Well, de- that's definitely one question I asked Dr. Chu. And before, uh, you know, it's, it's always safe to check with their doctor, but Dr. Chu also had uh, weighed in a little bit. Are there people who perhaps should rethink before they take a cruise or, you know, consult their doctors or or think about maybe delaying the cruise or not taking a cruise? Uh, Yes, I think certain guidelines for pregnant patients, I don't think they allow a pregnant patient to be on a cruise after six months gestation. Um, Okay, so (laughs) I would not have necessarily guessed. It seems like Dr. Chu definitely has opinions about the ideal cruise person, which makes sense from a medical perspective. Um, He would like to see younger, healthier people. Wouldn't we all? Well, we do love to always get a little bit of travel stories. And this week's Just the Tip, did Dr. Chu provide, as certainly as a physician who gets to visit 
every continent, multiple countries and ports. Did he have any just the tips to provide to you about? Oh boy, did he! And I'm jealous of what he did. Tell us about a uh, a destination that you you really enjoyed and uh, that we might want to we, we might want to know. Yeah, I uh, did uh, a trip down uh, South America that we started in uh, Chile, Valparaiso, uh, just a seacoast outside of um, Santiago, and we just, uh, cruised on the, along the coast uh, down the uh, South American coast, and then we reached the tip uh, in Argentina. And then uh, we uh, cruise over to uh, Antarctica. We actually never uh, make landfall in Antarctica, but we stay close to the shore and watch a lot of penguins and have a lot of naturalists come uh, talk talk to us. Then we turn around and go back to Argentina, uh, Montevideo, and end up in Brazil. That's a very enjoyable trip. You see uh, 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 most of the South American coast. And the Southern Hemisphere did not make landfall in, in Antarctica. Was it cold out there? Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> that sounds like a good reason to stay on the boat then. Uh, well, Dr. Chu, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, I am jealous. Maybe maybe we should sign up, Ward, but, you know, for like one of the two weeks. Uh, I'm going to have to. I don't know if I have. Yeah, let's go on a cruise. Maybe we'll just go I on like a cruise. It. We'll hang out with him. <laughs> we don't. We don't need to. We don't need to treat anybody. Um, well, that's it for this week, folks. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. Um, if you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, as well as links to all the resources that we used in researching this episode. Special thanks to Dr. Chu. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise in giving us this information. And everybody, go out and you know. Go cruising on a Sunday afternoon or sit right back and you'll hear a tale and you can go on a, a tour of maybe a little bit longer than three hours, not quite as long as however long Gilligan's Island ran. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our co-hosts. And until next time, happy travels, as always, happy cruising. Happy travels. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
AdWanted UK is the provider of single-source media data for agencies, media owners, brands and academic institutions. And thanks to our rebranded news offering, called The Media Leader, we can also lead the way in championing excellence and inclusion in the media industry. To find out more, simply visit the-media-leader.com to subscribe to our daily bulletins. The Media Leader, from AdWanted UK.